Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge for a fresh new start. They never will bring you there everyone this is Fran Lewis this is MJ Network MJ after my sister Marsha Joyce and we have the author of the Ghosts of Thornwall Place and boy this is really spooky and it's really great and Helen Powell is here and Rachel is on the run from a man who killed her husband but wait until you find out what happens to her in the elevator and Helen Powell is here to tell us a TV medium who may be fraud oh well this is great and dealing with an ordinary man with a mysterious hobby every one of the building people in her building has a dark secret could one of them be the killer so good morning and welcome to mj network hello well uh, thank you for having me (laughs) so the (laughs) first scene sets the stage for what is about to happen in the course of rachel's life why, why did she isolate for nine months, and why did you start it that way? That was really unique and different. For sure. Um, well, uh, about two years before the book starts, um, her husband is brutally murdered, and we don't really know why until later on in the mm-hmm. book, but or who or why or any of that, any of the details regarding that. But we do know that she's on the run. So she's been on the run um, from whoever killed her husband because she thinks she's convinced she knows who did it. And um, so she's on the run, and she basically moves to Toronto um, into this high-rise, secure building where the security is supposed to be top-notch. She's supposed to be extremely safe there. And as Mm. time goes on, um, she becomes more and more agoraphobic. So there's two different types of agoraphobia. There's the one where you're just afraid of the outside, but she has the second one where she's afraid of getting panic attacks when she's outside and being vulnerable Mm. to whoever is targeting her so over the last nine months she's kind of holed herself up in her apartment and she just won't leave so she gets everything delivered to her she um she's uh, constantly monitoring the security guards in in her building and Mm -hmm. checking in with them to make sure that you know the the building is secure and all that but of course that's as you know Fran that's not enough to keep her safe unfortunately you're you're right and you know something there are a lot of people that are doing that now Unfortunately, for other reasons, it's sad that you know a lot of people just don't go outside and get everything delivered. So why did she run? She gets a phone call, and how would now? I know there are victims hotlines. I know there is nine one one, whatever. Nine one one gets your number right away. I know that. As a matter of fact, if you call a medical office, they know who you are even before you want to tell them who you are. So how would they get her phone number? How would they know her on a troubled, you know, for the victims hotline? She worked for them. How would they get her private line? Right. Well, she was working, um, she kind of, she was connected into their main, uh, I can't remember the word, switchboard uh, for for connecting to different callers. So um, her, her best friend 
at the hotline, Luke. He's, he's responsible for kind of switching the calls and directing the calls. So when somebody calls um, for the hotline, so in the very beginning of the book, she's basically, she's accepting a call from a distressed woman who needs help, and she kind of goes through uh, the whole the whole binder of uh, questions to ask and things to encourage her to seek help outside of just calling the hotline, the anonymous hotline. Um, but she does mm-hmm. say that if she calls back and she asks for Rachel, she'll, she'll be switched to her because um, she has a lot of repeat callers, people who just want to talk to her. Some of them are elderly. Some of them are a bit more distressed. So um, whoever called her would have asked for to speak to Rachel, and then they would have been mm-hmm. switched to her um to her number and when she answered the phone it was the uh, toronto distress hotline if you want to accept this call press one so she could uh, accept the call or reject it if she was no longer on shift and it was just on the edge of her shift so she could have technically rejected it and none of this would have happened <laughs> in in this uh, in the book <laughs> the book would have been very different <laughs> then it wouldn't have been a book yeah so too. she gets the phone Ooh. call <laughs> yeah i know that's uh, scary and, yeah so she does get the call, and but the thing is, the the caller is threatening her. They say that they know who she really is, and they knew her real name. So she goes by Rachel when she's in Toronto, but nobody else in Toronto knows her real name is Kayla. So when she realizes that, she realizes that she thinks that her husband's killer knows where she is, knows who she is pretending mm. to be now. So she's like, I got to run. I got to escape. And that's her biggest mistake because that building is very secure. She probably or she could have been fine. But when she's escaping, she going, she's going down the elevator to get to her car with her little duffel bag of all the stuff that she needs to escape. But then um, she gets killed in the elevator. She gets caught in and the that's elevator. That's not the end of her story. Yeah. That's, that's not the end of her story. That's just the beginning of a different journey, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yep, that was hard. the end of the second chapter. <laughs> well, after I read this book, I made sure that I had, you know, my everybody in the elevator with me. Because I wasn't going alone anymore, no. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, in this building, because it is lovely nonsense that's going on, this horror, um, only two people are allowed in the elevator, you and the person that you live with, and you don't let anybody else in, which is great. But in the other building where I used to live, you never knew. The same thing could have happened. The elevator used to break down. It used to fall, whatever. Yeah, this is, That's what scared me. Mm-hmm. So how did you get the so idea? You're only allowed two people? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, you're only, you're only allowed, allowed to have in the elevator. Is that just during the pandemic, or is that it's during the, the pandemic? Only during the pandemic, yeah. Right. And then you know there are people yeah. that you know ring the ring the elevator, and I tell them I'm sorry, you have to wait. If it's somebody mm-hmm. on my floor that I know is vaccinated like myself and boosted, and I know that they're okay, that's one thing. But basically, I tell them no, you have to wait because I have no yeah. desire to get my family had the virus and some of them still have it now i have no desire to join the club forever no no for sure so i mean yeah. it may sound rude and whatever but i'd rather be safe than sorry and everybody else you know the same thing so this is it how did you get the idea this is so cool for how to become a ghost and haunt Thornworld. Thornworld. i mean that yeah. is so that is so cool yeah my That was actually my initial idea for the whole story itself was I had a dream, a weird dream. Okay, I do have a fear of elevators, which is hilarious because I always live in apartment buildings. Right now I'm on the eighth floor of my apartment building, so I have to take the elevator. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
so I had a dream where I was a ghost attached to an elevator and I kept trying to leave the elevator, but every time I would you know, mm-hmm. kind of get a little bit further, but then the elevator would be called and I'd be sucked back into it. And I kind of liked mm-hmm. that idea for a story because, you know, there's that typical um, belief that any ghost is going to be connected to a place or an object. And I was thinking, what, what if a ghost was attached to an object that's not stationary? So this elevator is not stationary, right? So it's constantly moving up and down whenever people call it. Mm-hmm. So I thought it would be really interesting to kind of see her frustration of, you know, she can visit the two adjacent apartments around the elevator, but as the elevator gets pulled up and down, she kind of gets sucked back. So she's only seeing parts of the stories of the different, of her neighbors, but she is seeing more than she saw before. So some of the neighbors she didn't even know because she never really left her apartment. Some of them she knew on a very surface level, so she just thought they were the stereotypes of who, she, of who they seem to be. But now as she starts to observe them, she's realizing there's a lot more to the story. And I really liked exploring that. And one of my favorite films is the Hitchcock film, Rear Window. So I kind of, I, uh, the title of the book is a bit of a nod to the similarities there. The Ghost of Thorwald Place, Lars Thorwald is the villain in the Rear Window movie. And I liked the idea of, so she's observing them, she's getting parts of the story, she's still not getting the full story, but all she really has to do is with her afterlife is observe her neighbors and trying to figure out who killed her, but also trying to uncover their individual secrets and their individual stories as they as they progress. Well, the people in this building were really different. How did you create the residents? And they're so odd. And how did you get the ideas for all of them? Because there's no two that are the same. Some of them are like, I wouldn't want to live next door to you either. <laughs> no, right? Um, okay. uh, so what I did was I was thinking about different, because I've lived in quite a few apartments in, in my life, and I was just thinking of different stereotypes of people you'd expect to live in a high-rise building like this. So my uncle does live in a in a kind of, I, I based the building very subtly off of the building that my uncle lives in. So he lives in a very, theoretically, very secure apartment building um, that has a lot of these security features that I featured in my book. Um, but there was actually a triple homicide there, which is very rare because it's an, he lives in Ottawa, so there's mm. not a whole lot of murder going, going on in Ottawa, but there was still a triple homicide in his building despite all the security measures. So I found that very interesting, but I was also kind of basing the different characters off of, you know, the stereotypes of who you'd expect to see, and I wanted to make sure that they were different enough so that readers wouldn't get confused as we're switching back and forth because poor Rachel, every time the elevator gets pulled, she's drawn to another story. So she's only getting kind of snippets of the different stories. And there's other neighbors she's been observing too, but I didn't, I decided not to, to feature ones who are going to be boring, of course. But so for instance, there is the, um, there's the socialite who's aging. So there's Sabrina Highland. She's one of the, one of the major characters of the story. And um, what I wanted her to be was she seems very, uh, she seems very um, shallow. Uh, when when Rachel met her when she was still alive, she thought, oh, she's just, you know, she might be a, a bit of a day drinker. She seems very um, shallow. She doesn't really seem to have a lot of substance to her. She doesn't. She seems really happy. She's just happy with being, just walking around drink, day drinking all the time. But of course, as you start to observe her, you realize that there's a lot of, there's a little bit more to the story than what meets the eye. Um, and I had a bunch of different characters. I just wanted to explore. So there's that, there's that one 
neighbor who works works all day, goes home to his apartment at night. He's dressed very plainly. He wears that mm-hmm. suit. Who is he? What is his What is his story? He seems very boring, but as you watch him more and more, you realize that there's a lot more to than meets the eye. So the same goes for, for instance, the concierge, um, Elias Strickland. We meet him. He knows everybody in the building. He knows everything that's going on. But it becomes clear that he's He's got his own agenda. He's got his own motivations, and he's got his own loyalties to certain residents and that. So, yeah, I wanted to explore, I guess, the different types of people that you might see and think about All what I know is that secrets might be. <laughs> a, a, a building with a concierge or a you know doorman or whatever, do they have the keys to everybody's apartment? Can they get in there if they really want to? Yeah, yeah, it's mandatory. Yeah, it's mandatory to give your keys to the to the super, yeah, or the super or the concierge or whoever is, yeah, for sure. That yeah. is, that's scary. That is scary. Mm-hmm. And that that that's really scary because you don't know who these people are. Basically, they're supposed to be bonded and they're supposed to do a check, but you never know. And then they could have a friend that comes in too. Oh gosh, that's scary. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I have moves. in my previous apartment building, my my landlord or the super would joke about, it's like, oh, you're going out for a couple of weeks? I guess I'll come and drink yeah. all your beers. And I'm like, that's not funny. <laughs> Please don't come into my apartment. I'm like, you have to. Scary. <laughs> well, the building I lived before this one, um, thank God we moved. Um, they had, you know, they did have a doorman and they did have, you know, guards and stuff, but when I before I moved the last couple of years they had nothing, and you could, you never knew, and the door had a special lock and people had special keys, but the people would leave the door open, and anybody could get in. I mean I'll never forget one night my cousin was going to work, and he walked down the steps and you never knew who you were going to find it. There were homeless people on the steps, so that that's scary. Mm-hmm. Each yeah. resident has a secret, and each floor she meets the resident. Why does she become attached to Alexi? I mean, really, these these residents, I wouldn't right. want to live near them. <laughs> no, definitely not. Yeah, definitely mm-hmm. me neither. <laughs> well, maybe a couple of them, but we don't see much of the, the ones who aren't, uh, you know, twisted and have dark secrets. But for Alexi, um, he's a... Basically, the reason why she gets so um, attached and wants to visit him more often is because he is a he's a TV personality, and she re- remembers him. She has never actually watched his show, but her best friend watched his show religiously. And basically, he's a TV medium, so he communicates with the dead for for his guests, and you know tells them you know whoever is moved on to peace or whatever like that. But his TV show has actually recently been canceled. So he's trying to figure out what he wants to do with the rest of his career because he's very, very ambitious. So when she figures out that he's Rasputin, the infamous uh, (laughs) Russian TV personality, she's really excited because she's like, oh, my gosh, he's a TV medium. Maybe he's a real medium, and maybe I can communicate with him, and I can actually, you know, communicate with him, tell him I know who killed me because she thinks that who killed her is the person who murdered her husband two years ago, and she's convinced Mm -hmm. even though she didn't see who killed her. So she's like, if I tell him this, maybe I can move on. And then as the story progresses, there's another character mm. in the building who's in danger. And she's like, I really need to communicate with Alexi about 
this person so that he can help save this life instead of focusing so much on her own her own story like where she wants to move on to the light meet her husband again you know have that happy ever after in the afterlife but she realized that she needs to try to protect this other character and so she's really hooked on trying to communicate with him and it's not as simple as just talking to him he holds seances sometimes for his uh for his clients, and so she tries to crash. <laughs> she mm. wants to crash those parties, so to speak, so that she can communicate and get her own her own uh, her own message across. It's really scary because every time she goes in the elevator, she never knows where she's going to turn up, or what floor she's going to be on, or who she's going to see, or what she's going to encounter. That's scary enough. Now this character really got me. Tell us more about the woman with no past. And her relationship with Clark. Now, that is scary that the woman has supposedly no past. Whoa. Yeah, so she's a mysterious character that we meet um, in in the building. And she basically, we don't really know a whole lot about her. We know that she has, you mm. know, that while it seems like she has no past, that she's very, she's clearly mourning something, but she's completely wiped the past from her apartment. So, if you take a look at she, um, Rachel takes a look at all the photographs on the on the mantle in her apartment, but she has taken all the photos out, so they're just actually the the default photos mm-hmm. from from the frame. So we really don't know a whole lot about her. But as the story progresses, it's clear that she's not altogether sane. She's um, sometimes she'll dance at night to this mysterious music that appears in the in the building. Um, and you kind of think that maybe she might be walking the line between the afterlife and the physical plane because she's clearly, she hears the music for one thing, which most people don't, but, um, but Rachel's also kind of afraid of her. She doesn't want to try to engage with her. She's kind of hooked on trying to connect with Alexi because he's, well, he's much more sane and she's a little afraid of the woman with no past. And, um, yeah, so the the woman with no past clearly has some past, but as the story progresses, it's gradually uh, revealed to the reader um, what her story exactly is and how it connects to the other to the other residents or even ghosts in the, in the building. It's scary. I mean, I'm looking at the book I have it in front of me, and each each chapter goes on another floor. So I said, "Oh my God, how am I supposed to know where are they?" And then, how come you included a diary? in the book. I'm looking at um September thirtieth. And how come you included a diary in the book and what was the point what was how was that supposed to help us? For sure. So um as you probably know, I don't want to reveal too much, but the diary does play a critical yeah. part in the in the twists at the end, but I'm not going to talk about that. But there's two mm-hmm. main reasons why I wanted to, or maybe three main reasons why I wanted to have the diary. Um, one was because I start the book after she's gone on the run, right? And she, I wanted to start it before she died, so you'd get a bit of a sense of the level of fear she has, you know, her level of agoraphobia, her paranoia. Um, and then once she dies, you don't really get a sense of how she interacted with people, who she was before all this ha- happened with her husband. So I wanted to show how light and carefree she was. It also kind of served, in the very beginning anyway, served a little bit as a little bit of a relief from all the stress. Like right after you meet the woman with no past for the first time, you're probably feeling really, you know, dark and down. So you have that first chapter with, in the past where she's all excited about her wedding, um, that first uh, diary entry, I mean, where she's all excited about her wedding, but it also provides um, backstory into her relationship with her husband. So we're getting to mm. know who he was. We're getting to know who might have killed him as you're 
as you're reading through the diary entries. But one of the other main reasons why I wanted to have the diary entries was because her best friend Catalina, um, she comes to she joins the building uh, a few chapters mm. in to try to figure out who murdered Rachel, and I w- really wanted to show that really strong platonic platonic sisterly love that uh, Rachel and Catalina shared with one another. And the best way to do that was through the diary entries. Because you see, while her husband is featured in a lot of them, it's really her it's really her best friend who's there for her no matter what. And even even after death her it's her best friend who's there for her, trying to figure out who murdered her. Well she's the only one because I said the people in the building didn't even budge. They didn't even do anything. It was as if so she's dead, okay, what whatever. And nobody really cared until Catalina came, I know. She didn't she didn't mm-hmm. care. And I felt at least somebody was was wanted to know, wanted to solve the murder. So you created so many. Which which characters were the most difficult to write about? And which ones would Rachel say that she would have liked to have gotten to know if she could have gotten to know them better if she lived she lived at all. Right. Um, I think the most difficult character to write. Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I really well, I enjoy writing Alexi a lot. Although I did struggle mm-hmm. with his character because I did for most of the characters I have quite a bit of personal growth for the characters either in some form or another. But one of the things that I wanted to do with Alexi was he's very ambitious, he's very self-centered, he's very focused on his career and not much else. And I wanted to actually have that remain. You kind of wonder if he might change uh, halfway through the book, but then I wanted him to remain true to himself and not actually evolve as a character. And it almost it was a form of a twist in the sense that he doesn't really do a whole lot to help because he's got his own self-serving uh, purposes that or he's really focused on his career and what he wants for himself. So it was a bit of a struggle to write him because I kept wanting to kind of redeem him, but I was like, no, we're going to keep him true to himself because other characters are all evolving and becoming new people. And I wanted to show that sometimes that doesn't happen no matter what, what kind of um, conflict or what obstacles we might face in your life. Some people just don't change, right? Um, what's the other question actually? Oh, who, who, who she, um, I'm she looking wanted, at the would have question. wanted to know in real life? Yeah. I just dropped a whole right. bunch of paper. So I think, oh, well. <laughs> in the words. Um, so I know that uh, in real life, or before when she was alive, she had met Dr. Favreau, the doctor, um, who was kind of, for a fee, <laughs> uh, agreed to be her personal physician so she wouldn't have to leave the building. So she had met her already, and she had also met Sabrina Highland, the socialite, who she kind of was very... Um, almost rude too. She didn't want to get to know her because she didn't really want to get to know any of her her residents. And then after death, she starts to feel a little bit bad about that because it's clear that uh, Sabrina's going through a lot in her life. And she's, you know, there's a lot more to her story. She's not just a shallow woman. She's got all these depths and all this pain. And uh, Rachel, one of her guiding uh, features is that she wants to help people. So it kind of kills her a little bit to know that she didn't help this person. But she also wishes that she had met Melody in real life as well. So Melody is one of the uh, women in the building, and it's the woman that she's really trying to help because she knows she has some issues with her husband in her personal life. And so she does wish she had met her in, in real life as well. You know, there are a lot of people in, in this world. Life, not in real life. <laughs> there are a lot of people in this world that 
actually believe in ghosts. And I think that they, they, sometimes they even hear voices. That's even scarier. And some of this, you know, I just wonder if she, what was, was if Rachel um, was alive or whatever, I don't know if she would be friends with any of these people in the building. But some people actually believe mm-hmm. in ghosts. When people have read this book, which character did I say they liked the best? Well, I mean, um, yeah, so some of the characters, I mean, they're not really meant to be incredibly likable. Uh, There's side characters. (laughs) So for instance, with, with Clark's story, um, I don't like him at all, but I like, I like the friend who stands up to him a lot. I really like how his character, his character's subtle growth over that storyline. Um, I know that people really liked Dr. Favreau's storyline, but I'm not yeah. going to spoil it here. But they love that. That A couple of people messaged me on social media to be like, oh, I got chills at the end of that storyline, how it wrapped up. Um, but, of course, I, hate, I personally hate Dr. Favreau. I don't like her. I do like the son, an adorable little um, a little kid who's uh, just trying to do, to do what to do bad by his mother and his father. Um, yeah. And most people do like Catalina, but she doesn't live in the building, right? She she comes to the building. <laughs> she comes to the building. Yeah. So tell us about Will and how come he needs to know why he wanted. Bill's patient seems to be wearing thin. I need to know, did you read the diary? Who Who is Will and how does he come into play with Elias? Ooh. Elias is really sneaky. Uh, sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't I don't want to spoil too much there, but um, basically Will is uh, Rachel's husband's twin brother, and Rachel never actually met him except for at her husband's funeral back um, because uh, Will and Jay Jay is the husband's name I'll say I'll say the name Will and Jay had gone through some extreme arguments back in the past, so Rachel never actually met him, um, but he mm-hmm. comes. To the building and he says he wants to uh, redeem himself he wants to figure out because he's convinced that uh, whoever killed um, killed uh, Rachel is actually the same person who killed his brother and he's kind of trying to mm-hmm. redeem himself trying to figure out who did it and then when he meets Catalina he realizes that you know working with a police officer regardless of if she's within her own jurisdiction or not will really help him to figure out to solve the mystery and he's got his whole wall on the – he's built up this whole wall in her apartment where he's got all the pictures of all of the residents in the building, and he's trying to figure out where they were, if they had any motives, if they actually knew Rachel before, because he thinks – he knows that the building is very secure, and he realizes that likely if she was murdered, she, was pro- there, she must have had help from somebody in the building already because it's so secure. Mm. How else would they have gotten in? So that's his rationale for, for working with her. And as as a cop, he thinks he doesn't know right away that she's not within her jurisdiction. So he thinks that she would have, you know, access to resources and, and, you know, evidence boxes and all that kind of stuff that he wouldn't have access to as just a regular member of the public. Um, but then it becomes clear that she's not within her jurisdiction, right? So she's from she's from Ottawa, but she came here just to, to try to solve it while on vacation uh, or taking a vacation from her work. So, but he's still already working with her because she's got a lot of ideas, and also he's starting to develop a little bit of feelings for her too. So, there's that uh, motivation as well. Let's go back to something from the beginning of the book. 
She had a friend that also worked there, Luke. How come she didn't let him come stay with her? Because if Luke had come stay with her, would she have been dead? Would he have stopped her from leaving? Right. Um, If she had, um, she definitely probably wouldn't have left if she had invited him over. But um, from her previous experiences, right, she thinks that this person who murdered her husband is after Mm. her. So she doesn't want to necessarily put someone else she cares about in danger. Um, She also stopped reaching out to him like a few, or she stopped inviting him over a few months earlier when it became clear that he was developing feelings for her and she couldn't reciprocate that just because of she still hasn't gotten over her stagnant pool of grief with her husband. Mm. So she she doesn't want to kind of lead him on and invite him over until it's until he really acknowledges that she can only be a friend to him. She can't be anything more than that with him. But I think the main motivator for her was, no, I'm not going to put him in danger. You know, if this person knows where I am, having him come mm. over is just going to put him in the crosshairs, right? Yeah. Well, if she had not escaped or gone in the elevator... Now, how, I mean, she didn't really, she saw the person in the elevator. She knew the person was there. They never expected that that person would kill her. And she didn't see who it was. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't matter anyway. Yeah. No, that, that's it was, well, it would have helped a lot in her afterlife with all the questions about who killed her. Because yeah. basically the way I, I worked it was that the elevator was going down. You know, the power went out. She's yeah. freaking out. She puts down her bag. She's trying to pry open the doors. And we're having visions of, you know, that scene in The Shining being like, oh, no, I hope I don't get sliced in half. And then the elevator starts up again. And then when the doors open, she turns around to pick up her bag. And that's when she gets she gets killed. Or somebody attacks her from behind and she fights back and then she gets killed. So it's uh, <laughs> yeah. I didn't. I really didn't want her to see who killed her because you don't know at this point. It could have been a strong female. It could have been a male. Whereas if she had seen them, um, the odds are she would have maybe put two and two together. You know, looked at height, kind of started being able to narrow it down a little bit more that way. So all she knows is they were wearing thick leather gloves and they were grabbing her and slit her throat. It's so sad. <laughs> scary. So mm-hmm. yeah. Rachel, Rachel, Rachel learns a whole lot of lessons. But how does she feel when she learns two truths? How does she learn, feel when she actually finds out what really happened without saying what happened? Yeah, she's uh, um, pretty shocked. Well, throughout the entire novel, she's starting to realize because she one of her major personality flaws is that she jumps to conclusions and she kind of sees things at surface face value. Even despite what happened in her past, she still Mm. assumes kind of, she makes assumptions about people and she sticks to them, which is one of the reasons why I wanted all the different characters in the building to be a stereotype or, you know, who you'd expect to see in this building. But then as you peel back the layers, you realize that there's a lot more to the story. Sometimes there's the complete opposite of who you assume them to be. So as the book progresses, she's starting to realize that she really shouldn't jump to conclusions like that. She shouldn't assume that somebody can be trusted or assume that somebody can't be trusted just based on very superficial features about that, about that person. So by the time it reaches the end of the story, when she realizes that, again, she's kind of jumped to conclusions, she's made some assumptions, and, all, and then the, the real truth is revealed to her, she's kind of, it's not as shocking as it would have been at the very beginning of the novel, let's say, because she's starting to have that, those realizations as the book progresses about human nature and how things are rarely black and white, all of the characters in this book are morally gray, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
So she, by the end, it's it's still a shock. She still feels very betrayed and very um, mortified yeah. that she didn't see the clues. But at the same time, it's not as shocking as it would have been at the very beginning of the book before she had done all this personal growth in her afterlife. Yeah. That's how she gets to the afterlife. But mm-hmm. the residents in this building, um, what would happen if they all turned into ghosts like her? Would she? Would they have been haunting her too? Would she be haunting them? Would they ever? Would they ever think about haunting the building forever? Yeah, I mean, I actually was thinking about that whenever I did kill a couple characters off in the book. I, I did yeah, I know. think about that quite a bit about if I wanted them to stay as ghosts, and it kind of depended like on the different characters, right? So I don't want to spoil who gets murdered in the book, but for instance, the first character who gets murdered, aside from Rachel. Um, that character has already undergone their entire story and they're, they've come to peace with their death, so they really don't last very long in the afterlife. They, I think, spoiler alert, Rachel meets them as a ghost and then they move on fairly close after because they've, they've, um, they don't really have that unfinished business, so to speak, uh, to deal with. So I didn't want to have too many, too many new ghosts appearing in the building. There are a couple of older ones. And it all comes down to if their story is over yet or if they have more that they want to accomplish. So in Rachel's case, um, she has her, she doesn't know who killed her. She wants to figure out who murdered her. But there's also, she had done that, she had had that phone call with somebody on the distress line right before she passed. And that actually plays a, a part of a role in why she's staying behind as well is her desire to help and to do one last good thing before before she moves on. And so a lot of the other the other characters who die in the building, they're all they all tend to have their um, range as well. So Rachel has her I can't remember the exact dimensions. I, I was looking at blueprints and figuring out the dimensions of ranges <laughs> when I was writing the book. Mm-hmm. But um, she's got her range that surrounds the elevator. But other ghosts have their ranges as well. So she doesn't really she won't if she's fortunately she can kind of avoid a ghost if her elevator moves in time so she doesn't necessarily have to see you know any any ghosts that might be present in the basement for example but she'll just hop up to the to the lobby level and just stay in her her small spherical uh, range up there if possible but well, who is yeah, melody so and why does she take ghosts? a liking to her she sort of watches out for her mm-hmm. how come right um, so Melody is just a, she's a young woman who's um, seven months pregnant, and she's married to a man who's very, um, he seems very charming, or he seems charming to the outside world, but he's actually, there's actually a little bit of a domestic abuse issue going on yeah. with them, and Rachel does feel kind of responsible, she wants to help. She, because she's been working or volunteering for that crisis hotline for so long, she thinks that she can you know if she can reach to out to her if she can you know give her positive vibes or somehow convince her to have the strength to leave um she that's something that because she's not really used to being being incorporeal and not being able to act and interact with her surroundings and just not being able to help um melody is very hard for her so she's she tries she tries Mm. to help her but i mean she's not necessarily able to communicate with her because she's not a medium and she's just you know she's an adult she's not a child so it's very difficult for her just to observe that and she becomes very attached to her and when when things happen 
when things escalate with uh, Melody and her husband, she mm. decides to when she when she <laughs> when she party crashes uh, Alexi's seance, she decides she wants to focus on trying to help Melody instead of trying to tell him who killed her basically so she kind of her priorities shift in an instant because she's like you know what this this girl she's in danger right now um i really mm. need to help, try to help her so she tries to communicate with alexi about her instead of focusing on herself. i mean it makes sense uh rachel's there so she's not going anywhere right so it makes sense mm-hmm. to prioritize the, the living and and rachel is a good person she does try to help she um that's one of her her compassion is one of her guiding forces so I wonder if she'd want to come back as a ghost and help more people <laughs> in the afterlife. <laughs> what can I say? So before I forget, I think by the end she was ready. <laughs> by the end she, she was ready, ready to go. Yeah, ready to move on. <laughs> She's like, well, you know, okay, I can't well, help. Let me put my right. I'm out of here. <laughs> well, tomorrow, this is going to be really huge. Uh, tomorrow, I'm going to be having a discussion. It's not an interview. It's a discussion with Dr. George Cavuto, who is the foremost authority in reading, which is my field. He's my professor at Lehman a long time ago, and I tagged him, and he's so excited because we're going to talk about how to assess children's learning disabilities through problem solving. And we're going to talk about the new app that people have, you know, Speech to Read. And we're going to talk about that, too, because I learned a lot about it. And he's very proud of me because he said he's very proud of what I do. He actually listens to my shows. So that makes me feel good. On the 17th, psychotherapist Dennis Palumbo and I are going to tackle winter blues, depression, and how to get around it in this horrible pandemic. On the 20th, I am so honored. New York Times author Marsha Muller, Ice Cold. I've never interviewed her before, but we're going to see what happens. It should be fun. On the 24th, Dr. Maxine Thompson, Lineage. And on the 26th, I do panels. We've got Charles Salzberg, John Land, Marilyn Levinson, and Alan Topol. We're going to talk about the last line of your novel. Does it give you a prelude to what's going to happen next? Is it the ending, or how do you create that last line so people want more? That's just my wild ideas. It's fun. On the 1st of February, David Putnam. And on the 3rd, Brian Freeman, who took over the Jason Bourne series. That's just what's coming up part in February. There's a whole lot more coming up till the end of May. So if anybody out there has a book coming out, you better tell me, because May's almost gone. I have one or two left in June. So if Rachel could do it over again, what was she? What might she have done differently? Would she have run away? Would she still leave the building? Would she have handled things a little bit differently so she might not be dead? Yeah, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? She might not have run away if she had known mm-hmm. all of the. If she had gotten the full picture after her husband, well, I'm sure if she if she could do everything mm-hmm. differently again, she would prevent her husband from being murdered, right? But I think. Mm-hmm. Um, in the building itself, I think she would have tried to face her fears a little bit more. Um, maybe uh, she has a lot of regrets that she expresses throughout the novel. She regrets pushing yeah. her friends away. She regrets um, kind of holding herself up. I think she would have tried a little bit more of the fight instead of the flight um, mm-hmm. instinct approach to, to dealing with all the trauma. Um, and she she would definitely try. I think she would probably still, even 
even if she were still alive, I think she would still want to volunteer with the crisis hotline and help to help others because that's a major part of who she is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think she would just, she would try to be more assertive and be a bit stronger, not, not run away, but stay back, stay and fight, which she <laughs> figures out by the end of the novel, regardless of if she's alive or not. But yeah. Yeah, but no, this day, she has a, they called her, and if she called the police, would they have been able to figure out who called her? I mean, I would imagine they could figure out who it was, or maybe not. How come she didn't call the police mm-hmm. and tell them what happened? She sort of blew it off. Right. Yeah. So um, back when when her um, husband had been murdered, the police hadn't been much help. The only person who had helped her yeah. was her best friend, and her best friend is just, you know, a rookie cop, not necessarily high up enough to be able to enforce anything. Um, she And she's convinced that the person who murdered her husband has quite a bit of power and prestige and that maybe he's paying off. She's kind of paranoid mm-hmm. at that point, paying off the police because they could, they clearly didn't, wasn't, weren't able to pin her husband's murder on him. So she's just really worried that they won't be able to figure it out. But also when she does call the hotline, she calls her friend who manages the switchboard, and he says it was called from, you know, a blocked number. So right off the bat, we Mm. don't really know who had done the initial call. Um, So Mm. she kind of – and she thinks that the fear is a little bit more immediate, um, and she doesn't trust the police because of what happened with her husband. So she just decides, you know, I'm going to run. It's probably best. She's got her – she knows – you know, to pay cash and all that stuff when you run. So she, she's got it all figured out except for the actual escaping the building part, <laughs> where, which she didn't manage to, to get very far, unfortunately. Well, when you call these hotlines or even when you call 311 or 211 or whatever emergency service you have, they should be able to unblock your number. I mean, I called a medical office to make an appointment one day. My number is blocked and she knew what it was. I said, what am I on, three dial? I mean, it was no big deal, but it was like you, you wonder. I mean, when you when you're calling one of these hotlines or something, does, your number doesn't come up. Can you block it? I mean, seriously, unless you, of course, you're using a burner phone. That's different. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking probably a prepaid cell phone too. Like that's what I would. Mm. <laughs> not that I've thought a yeah. lot about committing my own crime, <laughs> but you use a prepaid cell phone and I can't be tracked to you. Usually, is what you do. Um, yeah. But so I what kind I of a man was her husband? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was. Um, one of the things about Rachel and her relationship with her husband was that it was a kind of a bit of a whirlwind romance. So she really only knew him for less than a year before she ended up tying the knot and all the murder went down. Mm. But he was basically, he was pretty, he was charming. He had some secrets with his past because he never really told her about what had gone on with his brother. Um, Mm -hmm. but he was essentially a good person. Um, of course, flawed because all the characters in in the book are, are quite flawed and have a a little bit of moral ambiguity to them. And, um, as the, as the diary entries progress towards the end of the novel, you realize that he has been kind of hiding about his brother and all of that as well. But I don't want to, I don't want to spoil too much. No. Did anybody in the building really... Notice that she was gone. Did anybody really care? Um, not really. <laughs> she didn't so. know anybody, right? At, at the very be- yeah. at the very beginning, um, Elias, the concierge, who she interacted with the most, seemed to care. 
Um, there was, of course, Sabrina had tried to interact with her about two years ago, but mm-hmm. hadn't really yeah. had any luck of befriending her. So she didn't really, she's, she's all in, um, embroiled in her own drama, so she really didn't care. The only reason why any of them really cared was because they were worried about mm-hmm. themselves. Um, oh, a killer could get in the building. Mm-hmm. What if they can, you know, could get me? It wasn't really so much of a, oh, that poor recluse who I never saw, I'm worried about her personally. Yeah, none of them. <laughs> they were all a little too self-centered for, for that. Or if they did care, um, we didn't really see it. Because there's quite a few characters in the building that aren't, you know, aren't as dark and twisty as the ones that I focused on. But we didn't really see them a whole lot, unfortunately, because their, their apartments weren't within Rachel's range of which, which apartments she could visit. So... But, I mean, I'm sure there were some people who were sad, but, I mean, nobody was really heavily impacted because nobody really knew her because she kept to herself. You know, this, with this pandemic, I'm finding people are exactly like that. Nobody really cares about anything, and nobody even says hello anymore. Nobody says good morning even. It's sad. And you, you walk in the mm-hmm. street and you're like, your face is covered with masks, and it's almost like that the characters in this book have their own mask on, because nobody really gets to know each other. That's sad. So in the end, yeah. there's so much sadness, deaths, and despair and betrayals. And how does she deal with that? Or how would anybody deal with that? Because you really can't trust anybody in this building. And if they were alive and this, during this time, the way it is, they probably wouldn't be any different, even if she was alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Um there's a lot of uh, sadness and betrayals, but there's also this um, yeah. a bit of hope that, that carries through without, throughout the narrative. Um, there's for certain characters like Melody, um, other characters like Etienne, the uh, Dr. Favreau's little boy. They all um, have quite a bit of character, personal growth as the story progresses. So while a lot of the twists are dark and um, somewhat depressing, there is that kind of ray of hope for certain characters. Kind of shines through as they grow as strong, grow to be stronger characters, stronger versions of themselves, and they overcome whatever obstacle or whatever. Um, I don't want to <laughs> spoil for those two, but whatever is um, keeping them, keeping them down, basically. Well, who at the end of the story is left? There's very few people. I like my favorite character is a, is a woman with no past. I love that character because sometimes you really want to erase your past. You don't want anybody to know you. So that that was that was mm-hmm. really clever, that she she's not around. But the, mm-hmm. to, to be very honest, I mean this this was really unique. This book. How did you create the title, The Ghost of Thorwald Place? Yeah, it was a bit of a struggle. I had several titles beforehand, but um, so for the Ghost of Thorwald Place. So I I, I think I mentioned before. Uh, Lars Thorwald is the villain in the Rear Window, so I wanted to name the building, and I decided to give the name, give the building the name of Lars of Thorwald Place. One because it's not mm-hmm. a very common name. I, I googled it. Um, when you when you Google Thorwald, basically just Rear Window related uh, materials come mm-hmm. up, and I wanted to give a nod to that because it's one of my favorite films, but also it's um, one of the inspirations for the themes of the book. And um, so the ghost part, I really wanted to, and I, I, I in hindsight, it's 2020, right? But I wish I had kind of um, emphasized this a little bit more in the text. But the mm-hmm. ghost of Thorwell Place, sure, there's more than one actual ghost, like spirit in the building. But I also wanted to have that ghost represent the people mm-hmm. in the building who are not necessarily 
living their lives the way that they want to be. They're kind of, a few of them are just shadows of who they could be. A lot of them are just really weighed down by either grief or betrayal or just like depression. Mm. And they aren't necessarily full life people. So you kind of view them as a metaphorical ghost. And I do wish I had kind of said, like, oh, she's like, I think I said that for a couple of characters, definitely for the woman with no past. But I was view- uh, viewing um, Sabrina a little bit that way as well myself, even though, mm-hmm. you know, she comes across as really charming and happy, but she really is one of the ghosts of Thorwall play. So I guess that's, that's how that title came around. Well, I love the cover. That's what got me intrigued when I got the book. And it says, trust no one, especially your neighbors. That would be a good title for another book, let me tell you. That is scary. Mm-hmm. So how did, how did you come up with that? And who created the cover of the book? Because it says it all with the elevator. Just just touched you. You look at it and you say, okay, i got to find out what happened. So I just sat down and read your book in a day. Not even. I just sat down and read it. So how did, how did you come up with to trust no one, especially your neighbors? Was that your idea? Um, I had a bunch of possible taglines, and I think they took two and kind of blended them together to make to make that one. Um, yeah, so we had a lot of um, a lot of different ideas for kind of being like, don't trust people. I can't remember. I have a whole list of all the dip possible taglines, but just wanted to kind of give a hint about about because the cover itself looks very spooky and the title is very spooky. So it's clear that there is that paranormal element mm-hmm. to the book. So we did want the tagline to be a bit more like, oh, you know, this could be a mystery, kind of like a domestic suspense, a psychological thriller style mystery to kind of blend the two. Yeah. Mm. Um, I think I think that works pretty pretty nicely. Well, considering I've read so many books, <laughs> and lately I've gotten some really odd ones. Uh, when, I, I never know what I'm going to get, you know, and then um, Gina or Wendy, or it used to be Cheryl, I miss Cheryl listening, um, used to just tell me, they give me like a summary of the book or whatever, and basically they just, they don't even ask me if I want to do it, they just automatically tell me I'm going to, which is good, but then once in a while when I'll just say, never, no no way, but this, this, this book was different. I mean, because most people don't write the type of stories, and usually I get the same thing, oh, it's a murder, blah, blah, blah. And after a while, I can figure out who did it before the end of the book, maybe on the second page. So what is next for you? What are you going to write next? And would you ever bring back one of these ghosts as a character for another book? Hmm. Um, yeah, I've been, I'm working on a few different paranormal thrillers. I actually just finished mm-hmm. a draft, a first draft of one that I was oh, working on. A, I'm kind of riding that high of, you know, oh, it's complete before I <laughs> before I go back into it. Um, yeah, so, and um, I don't know if I would bring back any of the characters. Um, my sister had joked <laughs> with me. She was like, when Catalina leaves the building, she should just get killed in her cop car, and then she hunts the cop mm. car. And I was like, that's too funny. Um <laughs> Because then it would be like another um, unconventional haunting where it's haunting an item that moves, you know? We're like, mm. I don't think I'm going to do that. But yeah, so most of the characters, they've all, all their plot lines have been completely resolved. A couple of them are resolved yet still open-ended, you know, could go either way for them. And, and I, I kind of like that. Um, it's kind of like mm. with life, you know, you don't know where it's going to go. I don't, I didn't want to say, you know, it's not necessarily happily ever after for some of these characters but it could be if they make the right choices following the book so I don't I don't think I'd, I'd revisit these characters no well hey you know you're, you're lucky because it's so hard to get um, a publisher to publish a book 
it's so hard to get anybody to publicize your book and to help you promote it. And my last book is called Population mm-hmm. Zero, the world stories about the end of the world. It was supposed to be the world without people. And I got some mixed reviews, and my publishing company, Independent, um, never again, um, they don't they don't promote your book or anything. And I was lucky that I got a print copy of yours because they're not giving print copies. They usually do when it's me because they know I'm not going to read it otherwise. I won't read anything on my phone. So how did you get so lucky? Is this the same publisher that's going to do the next one? Is this a independent um, or, or traditional? Yeah, it's um it's a small publisher in the in the state, um Tennessee. That's good. Tap Books. Yeah, um mm-hmm. basically I, I queried a lot uh to try mm-hmm. to find um I tried to find an agent at first and, and then I found um CamCat. Uh yeah, it is difficult, especially when your book, because this book you like you said, is very different, right? So a lot of yeah. people, you know, they would request to read it and they said, Oh, I like your writing but I can't have I can't pub- like publish something that's from the perspective of a ghost and it's like, Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um they're or like they're saying there's no market for ghost stories, one of the one of the agents has said. So it's very it is very difficult, especially when it's like you want your book to be typical enough, you know, like I feel like if I wrote like, you know, the girl with, mm-hmm. <laughs> with whatever, and it's just, you know, a typical psychological thriller, but then all the books are like that. So how would you break through that way either, right? So it's kind of, I think yeah. it is difficult because it's like you want your book to be different, but then you also want your book to follow those trends that they've kind of beaten like a dead horse, <laughs> where it's like if I have to read, like I, I, I'm not really reading any more domestic suspense because they're all, <laughs> they all feel the same at this point. Um, but yeah, it is it is very difficult for sure to get a publisher and to to do all that. No, my book is it's it's nine worlds that I created that you wouldn't want to live in: a world with ice, a world with no sun, a world that's cold, a forest that's dilapidated, and I invited a dead person to come back and experience the world and tell everybody what the person went through to live in the world I created. So maybe people will start acting nicer in this one. That's what the purpose of the book, and nobody got it. Well, some people did get it. A lot of people did, and I got some mixed reviews. Um, you have to have thick skin, let me tell you. And one girl said, I don't know how you wrote that. I don't understand it. I go, well, that's okay, because I'm not even going to explain it. So where can everybody get this book and anything else that you've written? Yeah, um, so this is for sale, I think, pretty much everywhere. So it's at Barnes & Noble and Amazon. Um, I do have a website which has this listed okay. as well as all my short stories and where you can access those. Um, it's just uh, HelenPower.ca. Yeah. There's also well, a this nice is... book trailer for this for this book mm. that my sister made. If, uh, she wrote the music for it, so if anybody wants to watch it, if they need, if they haven't read it yet and they want to be convinced <laughs> to to read the book, they can watch the trailer on my website. But my sister went this to. Audio editing school, so she she had some fun mm. making the sound effects and everything for the trailer. Well, that is great. You're very lucky to have somebody to help you. That's good. I've been doing it all by myself, and I do this for other people because it matters to me. Because of this pandemic, the publishing you know industry and getting you know print copies and anything done is kind of hard. So this this is fun, mm-hmm. and I love doing this, and I've been doing it forever, and I hope I can do it for another 5,000 years. But everyone, it's really be nice if everyone in the world, seriously, would do an act of kindness for someone every day, say something nice, because maybe if everybody would do something nice, 
the virus would realize you're not welcome here and you are the only thing that's negative so maybe it would disappear and we can get the world back where it was before so thank you so much do you do panel shows by any chance uh yeah i've done a a few panels yeah well i have to contact i'm doing one on on march 17th for women's history there were three authors that wrote three different uh, books about the Holocaust. They were really good. So I decided to do something to honor female writers that are not on television, something different. But thank you so much. You, This has really brightened my day. Actually, I'm not cold anymore. This is great. And maybe some <laughs> of those ghosts are warming me up or something like that. But everybody, it's 23 degrees outside. But you know what? The sun is shining, so smile. Helen, thank you so much. Everybody have a great day, and bye. Thank you.